Good morning. It is Friday, January 17th. January is moving right along. This is the Debrief Podcast. I'm Josh Durso, joined in studio by Jackie Augustine and Ted Baker. Welcome back. New week. Plenty of headlines. Always a pleasure. Plenty to talk about. <laughs> Man, is there ever plenty to talk about. Um, so we had this whole slate of topics to talk about, and then right in the last five minutes... We had a late addition that yes. really got Jackie Augustine going. <laughs> really got her going. That must have to do with open time. government. It certainly does. <laughs> so, if in case you haven't heard, Jackie hadn't heard as of this morning. <laughs> yes. Um, or earlier this week, I believe it was earlier this week. Uh, Shoshana Bali, Bully Bali, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Um, the, the state's committee on open government uh, appointed a new director. It had been obviously vacant since uh, the whole controversy involving Bob, Free uh, Bob Freeman. Um, but here we are with a new director, uh, as Jackie pointed out, and nation a nationwide search that didn't feel too nationwide since nobody knew uh, that they were even close to making a decision. The decision came in a fairly nondescript press release earlier this week, um, and the, the reaction to it's been pretty intense and intensely negative, I would say. Um, your thoughts on what you've seen so far, Jackie? Well, I think the Albany Times Union headline really sums it up, which is state's new open government expert was hired in secret. The 11-member advisory committee for the Committee on Open Government didn't even know. And uh, the person who's been appointed who is an IT attorney, um, was in the Cuomo administration for four years. And according to this article, uh, she has is kind of known for denying FOIL requests from the office that she was in before. And the Times Union says that she ruled against the Times Union in 10 out of 10 decisions last year. So Just a few. I'm a little concerned about that. First of all, because I know that um, most news outlets aren't filing random, spurious freedom of information requests, right? A freedom of information request takes time, has to be very specific. It's filed when people are looking for something that is in the public interest, generally. I know that sometimes residents will file FOIL requests um, to try and figure out what's going on or sometimes to file a lot of requests to kind of bog things down a little bit. But usually the majority of requests are for legitimate purposes. And I find there are very few reasons for denying somebody's access to a public document. I mean, we are the government. That is, that's the idea. So if you're going to tell us, no, you can't see this, it's got to be something that falls into one of these very limited categories. So I find this very concerning. Um, Bob Freeman, for you know all of his issues aside, um, I, I think the consensus about his professional work in that office in terms of advising people on the open meetings law and um, freedom of information requests and his knowledge of the legal standards was a resource that uh, favored public disclosure. And it sounds like maybe um, 
the Cuomo administration is trying to tip the balance a little bit in the other direction, and that would be concerning to me. It, it's interesting to me because his the the standards that had been laid out in the last several decades under his leadership, under Freeman's leadership, mm -hmm. previous leadership, um, are still the standard. Like right. they are still the standard now. Uh, and I think just as a as a journalist who you know, had to reach out to the Committee on Open Government just, you know, in the last three, four weeks about a, a very specific hyper-local issue um, that otherwise wouldn't have, otherwise there wouldn't have been an answer. There right. wouldn't have been any, there is nothing in New York State, in the framework of how government works, to hold government accountable. Right. Aside from this organization, this entity. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the integrity of this entity is incredibly important. And, you know, I, I hope that it doesn't have an impact. I hope that the, the good people there in, those, in that office who have already been doing great work for a number of years are able to continue doing great work. Yeah. Um, my initial thought was that, and like a lot of things that happen in Albany, um, a lot of people have a very cynical viewpoint of Governor Cuomo, and I am probably one of those people who also has a pretty cynical view of him. Um, I think most of the decisions he makes, he makes them in the scope of how they will affect him or how outcomes will affect him personally. Right. So I don't think that this decision was necessarily made um, to stymie anyone who's trying to hold local government accountable. Now, if you want to hold Albany accountable or if you want to hold the Cuomo administration right. accountable and you were hoping that the Committee on Open Government was going <clears throat> to be your, your avenue to that, uh, I think that that just went flying out the window. Um, but for everyone else, I think, who wants to hold local government accountable, especially with the density of, of material that's actually available through their library of, of advisory opinions mm -hmm. and things like that, I'm not sure that you could turn the Titanic in terms of, you know, sort of rewriting the, the book just right. through the appointment of one new leader. Right. But no, I, I, I mean, at the same time, it's equally appalling and equally annoying that there again in this arena where you would think the state would want to go out of its way to make sure that the public understands what's going on and to make sure that there isn't even the appearance of some kind of malfeasance or any, anything at all, that they would go through what, what is clearly a pretty secretive process where the people who were working in the office didn't even have a clue what was going on or that a decision like this was coming. Well, I think it's pretty clear that Governor Andrew Cuomo has no interest in open government and never has. If we didn't know that before, we certainly know it now. And I'm going to disagree with the two of you on turning the ship around because if I'm an employee in that office, I'm able to read the tea leaves. If I see my new boss comes in and is a foil denier, and not an advocate of go open government, I want to keep my job. I'm going to, I mean, I think things will change pretty quick up and down that office. I mean, that's the whole point of bringing somebody like that in as a director. Well, I don't want to say that this woman who I know nothing about except for what has been written ab about her, um, I don't want to say that she's akin to like a Kellyanne Conway who's out to shut everything down and keep the truth 
behind, you know, some veil so that none of us can figure out what's really going on. Um, but I will, I do, again, just want to quote something from this article because this, I think, goes to your point, Ted, that there could be a lot of damage that could be done um, to the the kind of legacy of, of what was um, kind of the advocacy to this point. It said... Um, she declined to be interviewed for this article or to answer written questions about her past work in the Cuomo administration. She did not provide copies of her past legal decisions at that agency concerning FOIL requests, stating that those records themselves would have to be provided through FOIL. And what I would like to just mention is that a lot of the information contained in the Committee on Open Government's advisory opinions and just the documentation on their website, and if anyone had ever spoken to Bob Freeman or people in his office, they would tell you public records should be accessible and open to the public without requiring a FOIL request in the first place. One would think. Right. But once you get to a FOIL request, then again, the, the presumption is always toward public disclosure. So the fact that the new chairperson would say, well, you'll have to FOIL those, the presumption right out of the gate is not that those public records should just be disclosed as a matter of course without requiring the, that legal step of filing a FOIL request. So that is discouraging. Okay, so I, I guess the thing that the layer that I would add on top of that then, having just gone through not the FOIL side of the process but the other side of it where you just need an, you need an opinion from an official entity. Mm -hmm. If they can continue to provide those um, I think that a lion's share of the work, the good work that they do, will be able to continue. And I, I say that because of this. No matter what the Committee on Open Government says, if a FOIL request is held up, denied, or anything else by any local agency, there is no recourse other than an Article 78. Right. That's right. And unless you have the means to file an Article 78, and we're, we're actually watching a, a story along these lines play out right here in Seneca County with Marianne Kowalski and the county mm -hmm. um, over, over water and sewer records and financial documents and things of that nature. If, <clears throat> if an entity like a county or a town or a village or whatever the case may be decides that they don't want to honor or that they don't want to follow through in terms of the, the what the legal guidance actually suggests, the Committee on Open Government is really just uh, there to, I guess, provide like a, a double down, like a double whammy of no, you're bad local government, don't right. do that. But there, it doesn't, it's, there is no enforcement. And that's one of the, one of the things that, you know, I guess if you're looking long term and through my own work recently, I, I've learned that other states have much better enforcement mechanisms for local government that actually screws up when they make a mistake, when they do something that is illegal or that does not meet the minimum requirements of open meeting laws or whatever the equivalents are in other states. There are real ramifications. Yes. Training requirements, there are actual repercussions. In New York State, there's none of that. And with this, with this appointment, I, I believe personally that it, it pretty much seals that we're never going to see any kind of real progress there. 
Well, I mean, look at just in the city of Geneva, uh, when the news broke about some of the spending at the Welcome Center, and there were several FOIL requests from several media outlets for the contracts related oh, yeah. to that, um, particularly the general contractor and masses work at, at the Welcome Center. Um, the city of Geneva wasn't able to provide a lot of that because a lot of those contracts were with the state. And the state's response, shrug of the shoulders, right? We don't know. We don't really know. We paid the money and they spent it. <laughs> so again, you wonder what is the recourse? And New York State has historically, and we can't pin this all on Cuomo. I mean, this thing we can, but I, I mean, there are decades of history of New York State refusing to provide an enforcement mechanism for these kind of breaches. And I agree with you, that should change. I am not optimistic at all that it will under this new leadership. And, and you know, we'll keep talking about this one. This is obviously one that is of keen interest to us here on the show because this is probably at the core of most of the conversations we have in the studio are about how government doesn't work well, how it tends to lean a little on the corrupt side, and how there there tends to be a lack of transparency as well. Um, but another topic that I, I do want to get into, um, <clears throat> we linked to a story. So if you're on fingerlakes1.com, um, we linked to a story right underneath the video window uh, for the podcast today, a uh, piece by E.J. McMahon um, in the City Journal. Basically evaluates this divide between upstate economy and downstate economy. And it paints an incredibly bleak picture um, about the state of upstate's economy in general. Now, the reason why this is interesting, I think, not only because of its budget season and spending upstate is always a topic, um, but I think this is particularly interesting because of a, a tweet recently that got a lot of attention um, from the lieutenant governor, where she essentially, I mean, she didn't essentially, she said that the Southern Tears economy is uh, soaring. And, and I know this is part of their, their tagline for right. the Southern Tears, Southern Tears soaring. Um, she, she touted low unemployment numbers, a growing agricultural economy, and $702 million in state investment into the Southern Tier as reasons for, or causes, she says, for the Southern Tier's economy being on this uh, upward trend. Um, like I said, it received a lot of criticism from a lot of different mm -hmm. angles and a lot of different political views too. Um, is, is there a real disconnect? Is this the, I guess I wanna reframe that. Is this the last piece of confirmation that we needed to remind us that there is a huge disconnect between what elected leaders in Albany think and what reality actually is in the Finger Lakes, in upstate New York, in these rural communities that we end up talking about almost every week. There's a disconnect, but there's also there's this big emphasis on the unemployment number. And so unemployment is low. Well, hooray. But let's talk to some of these employed people. And they're working 30 hours a week or maybe 20 next week. I just I, I just read an article somewhere yesterday about this whole gig economy right. where companies are now using scheduling software, anticipating demand. Workers will have 30 hours this week, maybe 12 next week, 22 the week after that, low-wage jobs. So 
you know, great. The unemployment is low. I mean, there was a, a joke. Many this was back during the Clinton administration. Guys sitting in the diner reading the newspaper saying, "Look, the Clinton administration's created three hundred thousand new jobs," and the waitress says, "I know. I have three of them." Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I, I'm glad. I mean, that is exactly where I I was going to pick up on this. That. I mean, I, I don't think it's just the governor's office or the lieutenant governor's office. I mean, even nationally, everybody keeps saying, whoa, hooray, celebration, low unemployment. Well, let's look at the reason the unemployment is low. There is this reason that we have a lot of people doing multiple low-wage jobs, but also the way that people are reported for unemployment, people who've given up, right. who have timed out of the unemployment system, are also not. So, so you're seeing two things happen. Things are actually so bad at the lowest end that either people are just off the unemployment rolls altogether and have no prospect of employment and that I mean let's look around the Finger Lakes we see that or people are minimally employed and you know there low unemployment and economic prosperity are not the same thing right and so I think that's what was offensive in the lieutenant governor's tweet which was like let's have a celebration for the southern tier and if you read what people responded to it granted using language i would not endorse so i'm not saying i support that but i get the spirit that basically like you know are are you even paying attention you know are you even looking ask any random person in the southern tier if they're enjoying this economic prosperity and they're probably going to laugh at you. Like but I think I, I think they really believe what they're saying. I, I think the it's, elected officials. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they believe because they look at the unemployment number and say, hey, that's great. Right. And nobody they know and nobody in their family is working right. three jobs. Mm -hmm. The people in their families are working some no show government agency job where they make eighty grand a year. Right. Right. Well, and I mean, I think that's, again, that's what we're hearing at the national level. You know, we, we've got uh, Trump going to all these communities that are suffering economic hardship and saying, hey, I lowered your unemployment rate. And I'm thinking, you don't even know what the life of a person is like right. who, you know, needs an actual middle income, you know, middle class job. And what we don't have anymore in the southern tier or the Finger Lakes or rural areas all around America are the manufacturing jobs right. where a generation ago, uh, mostly men, but men or women, but without any advanced training or education, mm -hmm. could go to work in a factory, right. full time, probably a union job, and make enough money to support a family. Right. Those jobs are gone all over America. So it's great that unemployment's low, but you can't replace a $45,000 a year factory job with three jobs cobbled together that add up to 30000 and call it success. And know that you're going to have to work until you're 75 uh, just to right. be able to keep your housing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not... It is not a rosy picture. No medical and, insurance, no benefits, no vacation. Well, that ties into this other thing, right? So now the state, after the State of the State address, has this $6 billion deficit. The majority of that 
is attributed to increased Medicaid costs. Why are so many people needing to access Medicaid benefits? Why have we seen that spike? Because when you are working several lower paid jobs, you don't have access to health insurance. And I'm speaking from experience. Right. I mean, that is just the reality for a lot of people in New York State. So to say that low unemployment, again, equates to everything being a-okay is just such a broken economic picture, it makes me worried about our economic development policies. Because if you're making a policy without knowing firsthand what the economic conditions really are, how is that going to work? Someone, I wish I could remember who coined this, but I, several years ago someone said that, that the economy has become something that we're working for rather than something that should be working for us. We, the economy has become this master thing that we're all supposed to serve. Yeah. Well, okay. So a couple, a couple of the stats that I just had pulled up on the screen there, if you're watching us on YouTube, um, that I thought were, were kind of telling, kind of interesting, and, and the kind of numbers that we do, statistics that we don't necessarily hear about that often. Um, so since the recession ended, upstate New York, and this is directly from the piece itself, uh, upstate New York has gained uh, private sector jobs at one-third the national rate and less than one-quarter the downstate rate. Uh, during that same period, only three states, Connecticut, West Virginia, and Wyoming, had lower private job creation rates than the upstate region did. Uh, 20 New York counties, all upstate, still lagged their pre-recession private sector employment levels in spring 2019. Upstate's once mighty manufacturing sector had, especially, had been especially weak over the last decade, um, it, despite the fact that it itself, the manufacturing sector, has been growing uh, across the U.S. It, it just, like, I get that the elected leaders and the officials with New York State who have invested a ton of money, a ton of time, and a ton of capital into economic development want to paint a favorable picture for the whole state and they want to highlight the successes and that's one of the things that I that's one of the responses that I saw to criticism on Twitter from Vinny Esposito was there is he essentially said um, and I'm paraphrasing but there is nothing wrong with painting a, a favorable picture and pointing out the positives inside the economy um, from an elected leaders position my frustration is that it tends to become reality if you perpetuate it enough. Meaning people will believe that things are fixed in upstate New York, even though they are not at all fixed. The economy, for by and large, the economy in upstate New York, I, it doesn't work for most people. And for a lot of the reasons that you guys just pointed out. But moreover, I mean, even if you're just looking in sort of the... Every economic developer loves to point to businesses that open. Mm -hmm. I have written in the last 30 days four stories about businesses that have closed, closed, not opened. And I get that it's an ebb and flow and they're constantly coming and going and that's kind of just the nature of business. But to sort of look at these hubs and, and maybe my worry is that our economic development plan from Albany is too focused on creating hubs rather than creating widespread economic development. So you go into one community in the southern tier that's be, that is finding more success than the rest of the region. 
and you tout that as as see the whole region's doing great. You're in Binghamton, and and apparently Binghamton is on an upswing of some sort, and and that was the backdrop for the lieutenant governor's uh, comments that day. And you know the Finger Lakes, it tends to always be Rochester. Or in some of the smaller cases, now you have Geneva and Seneca Falls, who have recently won DRI money. But what I would love to see the, the state commission or work through is figuring out what the economy looks like in all of the places that they haven't invested money, which is a lion's share of upstate New York. Look at the communities that you haven't artificially dumped millions of dollars into to see how the economy is doing. Measure how successful those places are, even if they're very geographically close to other communities. You know, how is Waterloo doing, even though they're very close to both Geneva and Seneca Falls? How is their economy? How is, how is Clyde doing? How is Lyons doing? Newark is doing well. They seem to be doing well from the outside, and I think they are by a lot of measures. But see, how about the communities that are just nearby? Well, you, you mentioned measures, and I think that's one of the problems. I don't know that we have the right measures. I, how do you measure happiness and contentment? Listen. You, you know, people are, people are not happy when they have to run around to their three jobs, and they can't find a place to put the kids because they just got called in on 24 hours' notice. you got to work tomorrow or somebody else is out sick. I mean, we, we just, again, it's all the unemployment. It's like the stock market. You know, stock market is at all-time high. Great. That's wonderful news for the 20% of people who own stocks. For the 80%, who cares? So I think that if you even looked at these numbers that the state tends to use, like the, the measures that the state likes to use, and you didn't have these little blips in the numbers, dragging the rest of them up, dragging the averages up, I think that it would be it would paint a very different picture instead of, of what upstate's economy looks like. Instead of tracking the unemployment rate, let's track the number of jobs that exist that support a family of four right. compared to in 1945. Mm -hmm. In 1945, there were plenty of those jobs in upstate New York. In 2020, not so much. Yeah. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit. Um, it appears as though we have a pledging problem. I didn't know that. I didn't know about this before, like a week and a half ago. Um, so the town of Enfield, and I want to focus on the town of Enfield. I realized that there was recently a, a pretty controversial story that got run in the Finger Lakes Times for a variety of reasons um, about a counselor who decided not to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, but then, just a couple days later. The town of Enfield voted four to one to end the practice of starting meetings with the Pledge of Allegiance at all. Uh, so instead, they will simply start meetings. Uh, the lone counselor who voted against the measure said that they were voting against it because uh, of the attention that would potentially be brought to the town council. And it was interesting because I felt like that was kind of a hedge in terms of that's essentially saying, I don't disagree with the premise. I just don't want to be a target politically. Um, for folks who might not agree with that type of measure. Now, interestingly enough, the town of Enfield is located in Tompkins County, or perhaps not interestingly enough. Um, it, it didn't really ring any bells. There weren't too many people who were vocally opposed to it. And I guess my curiosity is, is 
is this a story or a non-story? Because we're seeing a lot of a lot of discussion now because of what happened in Geneva, because of that story, and then now with with what happened in Enfield, we're seeing more discussion about the pledge. But is it necessarily newsworthy if a if a board decides that they're just not going to do it anymore, um, but still do the rest, fulfill the rest of their their actual duties? I don't I don't see any of this as a story. Um, I mean, I think what. <coughs> What's interesting, you know, if you want to talk about the, the Enfield thing, is that the town supervisor, you know, in supporting this, talks about um, her husband, who's a, a Marine, and his support for, you know, doing away with the pledge at, at the meetings as non-essential. And I, I said, I have said many times, the only thing to me that's, I like the pledge. The only thing that's interesting to me about the pledge is that it was created um, by a man, Francis Bellamy, from the Finger Lakes area, right, who was a Christian socialist. So I found it interesting in Geneva that all these people were like saying how great the pledge is. And I'm thinking, wait, I think these are all the people who are saying that we're all a bunch of socialists and we should go away. So I, I found that Quite, quite interesting. The only reason it was a story in Geneva is because it's just another thing to throw into the political fire that was already brewing, right? We're going to see a lot of non-issues become issues, I think, in the next few months because of that. But that's the problem with the people who want to fight, not with the people that are actually governing. So, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't see, I don't see it as an issue. I mean, if I, maybe this is my libertarian bent coming through. I don't know. Well, there's it's ebbed and flowed over the years. There's always been a strong bent of conformity in our country. The 1950s were very much a time of conformity. We're coming back around to that now. And, and what just always disturbs me, we had a, a lengthy discussion about this on our show this week, is that people seem to forget the United States is a country that was founded by protest. It was founded by dissenters. It was set up precisely so that people could disagree with their government openly. And I, why can't you just say, okay, you have an issue, you're protesting it, great, that's your right. Colin Kaepernick, you want to kneel during the anthem? I don't agree with you. I do, but I'm saying if someone doesn't, then don't agree with them, but allow it. I. I we had this conversation earlier this week. I said, if Fox News existed in 1776, their hosts would be ripping apart George Washington Absolutely. and Thomas Jefferson and all those revolutionaries right. who wanted to go after our good and benevolent king. Yep. That's that's absolutely the truth. And that's I people I think you're you're framing it as conformity is exactly right. We see that when we have economic insecurity, when we have political instability, people see conformity as a refuge and the thing that will bring order to an otherwise disordered state. And so uh, if people don't conform, it th throws people's world upside down and we need to be able to separate that from the actual principles that underlie the country that we're all living in and that we're all exercising our rights within. So I I don't know, yeah, I don't see this 
it's not an issue in itself. It's it's being weaponized. Right. Our then, our whole system is designed. The reason we set up our country the way we did was because under English rule you couldn't protest or it's off with your head. So we have the right to peacefully protest and peacefully assemble and petition the government our grievances and all those lofty words in the uh, Declaration of Independence. The other thing I find fascinating about the pledge is that many people, uh, younger people, don't realize that the words under God were added. Right. They were not a part of the, because that's right. part of the whole, yes. you know, you, you <laughs> godless liberal communist right. troop haters and baseball apple pie and mom haters don't <laughs> like God. That was added later. Right. I just, I, I, it frustrates me that this of all things is a topic that is worth getting into. Like people are really, like there are people who are really willing to, to die on this hill, so to speak. But it's and what, that's the part that, that boggles my mind. When you look at any of these communities, and I don't care if you're on the political right or the political left, there are so many issues absent whether someone wants to or whether an entire board wants to pledge or not pledge. Yeah. Like, there are so many, frankly, more pressing issues that need to be addressed in all of these communities. And we just spent 25 minutes talking about how the economy is essentially trash in upstate New York. <laughs> and but, we're going to hear people get frustrated and annoyed and make news out of a, a, a pledge. The two things are related, though. It's what Jackie said. It's what it represents. The protest represents people saying, hey, things aren't great. We have a government telling us everybody's got jobs, everything's wonderful, sit down, shut up, and do what we tell you. And some people are going, no, it isn't great, and I'm going to protest. Colin Kaepernick said the way that black people are treated in our country still isn't right. He took a stand. He can no longer work in his chosen field because of it. So it's the, the pledge itself, it's, you know, is it a big issue? No, but it's... I think what it represents ties in with the other things we've been talking about. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess, and I would just point out again that um, the reason it's, it was so obvious to me immediately that this was a non-issue that was only being weaponized is that a lot of the people who are claiming that the pledge is this solemn thing that me, must need, like, no, 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 I know full well some of those people at past council meetings use that time to go to the bathroom, to crack jokes, to, I mean, so so that just, to me, doesn't sit well. Like, I, I, I it's easy to see through that, but apparently not, because it ends up still on the front page of the newspaper. Uh while that will probably be going away, and I hope it does go away fairly soon, the, the conversation about that, what isn't going away is is uh, Chris Collins' sentence. Um, well, he's which not going is, away, Which is happening <laughs> today, right? and it hasn't happened yet. Probably, perhaps by the time you're listening to this, it has happened. Um, so let's talk about it in general. Um, Jackie, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about the letters. I'm assuming that was the angle that you wanted to come from. And I found the letters to be particularly interesting. Um, there were a couple really great threads that I read on Twitter of basically just screen grabs of all of these uh, letters of support that were pouring in for uh, the, the now former uh, congressman. Um, obviously, the 27th district includes part of Ontario County. That's why we're talking about it. Um, what do we think the 
first of all, Ted, what do we think the expectation should be for sentencing, even though it might have already happened by the time some people are listening to this? Well, I'm no sentencing expert, but the, the thing that has always struck me about this is how utterly blatant it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a case of hubris and arrogance to call up all these family members and close associates, and the phone records are there, and say, hey, dump this stock because the bad drug trial news is coming out tomorrow and it's going in the tank. I, the, the, I always struggle with, with how someone can get to that mindset where they feel like they're bulletproof. Hey, I can do this and I won't get caught. How, how do you think you won't get caught? The phone records are there, and, and then he turns around and he pays himself back out of campaign funds right before he goes. I mean, that, this, is, this is a man who believes he's above everybody else. So, you know, it would seem a perfect example, a good place to make example of somebody, because that's, you know, going back to all these other things we're talking about, the, the, the protests and refusal to pledge. There's a belief that the criminal justice system, and, you know, throw bail reform into the mix, that the criminal justice system works differently for the poor or the black than it does for the well-to-do or the white. Yeah, I, I think it's not even so much that he was arrogant in thinking he wouldn't be caught. I think he was arrogant in believing even if he was caught, he would not be punished which is what we're seeing playing out. Because in these cases where you have well-connected white guys, sorry, sorry guys, um, everyone wants to rush and talk about all the good they're doing, how wonderful they are, right? I mean, let's not go back to the Brock Turner case, uh, you know, because I'm not, not uh, comparing this to, um, to, to a rape or sexual assault, but, but the idea is that it's certain people enjoy this status in the community whereby when they do something that is clearly wrong and deserves punishment, people rally around them with how wonderful and promising they are. And that is the exact tone, tenor, and point of the letter of support that Tom Reed sent on Chris Collins's behalf to quote it, which I just need to say as an aside, this is the second time I'm having to take issue with written correspondence from Tom Reed's office. I don't know who's writing his stuff, but they need an editor because it's not only grammatically wrong, but also terrible. But that's, that's a separate thing. So, um, so it says, his positive work should be brought to light also as opposed to just this negative comma situation that he is clearly needs to be held accountable for. Okay, I think what they're trying to say is, He's done a lot of good for his district, so you ought to take that into consideration and be lenient, even though this was a bad thing. I think that's what they meant to write in that collection of words. Right. But why is that offsetting? That's what I've never understood. Because he did his job as a congressman minimally in representing his district on some matters, the fact that he used that very job and the public trust to benefit himself should be okay. But He's I entitled don't, to that? I, I, I don't think that his work as a congressman should necessarily not be offsetting, but what it should be is applied equally throughout the system because the poor guy who wasn't a congressman who gets busted and gets sent to jail, no one's writing letters on his behalf. He probably did some good things too. Right. It's the unequal application 
of justice across the system that angers so many people. That's an excellent point, and you're right. I, I don't want to say that we shouldn't count someone's good deeds in taking a clear picture of the kind and amount of punishment right. they deserve. But yes. those good deeds tend to get magnified when the person is white, right. wealthy, and powerful. Yeah, and they have a platform, and they've got other white, wealthy, powerful people coming to their assistance. No one's asking the little old lady down the street if this guy came over and shoveled her sidewalk every weekend. Right. But they are asking the fellow congressman to speak nicely about and their And this colleague. is why Colin Kaepernick kneels down for right. the national anthem. Right. Exactly this kind of issue. So I think Collins should get the full five years. I mean, first of all, let's just say five years for what he did, well... I don't know if I want to say that because I'm not a huge prison advocate in that way anyway for these types of crimes especially. Um, but he deserves to be punished. If, if any crime deserves to be punished, um, it is an elected official with the trust of the public using that office for personal gain. And that if he's given problem. some kind of probation or something, he'll have a job with some think tank yes. making a quarter of a million dollars a year six months from now. Though that would be the appropriate Which kind will of further punishment. his belief that I can do anything I want yeah. away with it. I mean, the, puni the correct punishment would be to limit his access to government channels completely, but we know that won't happen. Right. But, you know, this comes so far down the line. You've got members of the county Republican structure that were involved in this. You've got Senator Helming's chief of staff involved in this. I mean, you've got a lot of Republican operatives tied up in this controversy and, and affected by it. And I just, I hope that um, their push to talk about how sweet and gentle and loving he is of Buffalo um, does not cloud the judge's vision that he used his office to materially benefit himself. One to two years, that's my, my belief at this point. I believe that's I, what it'll end up being. Probably, I um, mean, you're probably right. I, I, hope he, I hope he doesn't get just probation. And again, that'll be one to two years at a minimum right. security federal facility, what they call Club Med or whatever. And then in two years, he'll write his book and make a million dollars or go work for some other foundation and make his million dollars. So he'll come out all right. So we've got two, uh, two stories involving Congressman Reed that I wanted to quickly get into, just some, some broad thoughts. Um, Reed is openly considering a run for governor. That's part one, um, to challenge Governor Cuomo in 22. Uh, and then he was also named as one of, I believe, six representatives to lead uh, President Trump's re-election bid um, in New York, which I don't even understand. Like, I guess for me personally, I don't understand what the point of that is. A Republican is not going to win win New York State, so why are you dumping resources into, I don't know. But well, it's I think probably it's, more of a formality than anything yeah, else. Yeah, it's but symbolic thoughts. because of the, for example, what the, the one person who was excluded was Congressman Katko because he hasn't been as slavish in his support of the president as the other Republican members have. So that's your little punishment. You get left out of the cool kids club. Well, and Congressman Collins won't be joining that, but only because perhaps if you have a conviction, you can't be part of a presidential reelection campaign. I don't know. But does that <laughs> hurt? So, okay, to, to sort of 
harken back to <coughs> excuse me the point you made, Ted. Um, does that actually hurt Republicans? Because if he's excluded, that leads me to believe that he will probably, in some way, shape, or form, also receive less votes in a race that is going to be probably pretty tight. Um, Democrats always challenge well in that in his district, in that district. Um, so is is that cause for concern? Maybe he's getting punished right now, but maybe by being left out, it might actually hurt Republicans' cause, generally speaking, in securing as many seats as they possibly can? Uh, it could be, or, or maybe there'll be a, a well-funded primary challenge put up against him. That's the other possibility. Hmm. Maybe they believe that they can run someone else who's a more loyal supporter of the president. Uh, Are all Republicans Trump supporters? Like, I would hate to label everybody that way because, I mean, I have no. a lot of Republican friends, and I hate to say that's like, it's like the worst possible thing you can say. Well, you know, I'm not anti-Republican because I have some Republican friends. But I, no, I, what I'm saying is I have spoken to many Republicans who are not happy with Trump. I mean, they are right. like sensible, conservative people who have values who are offended by but Trump. Those kind of people are not running the Republican Party these days, and they're not the ones who will run a very well-funded primary challenge mm -hmm. against you if you don't toe the line. True Trump yeah. supporters, my personal opinion, liberal, lefty, weenie opinion, very few. But what there are is a lot of people who are scared to go across that line. Oh, okay. That that's what, I mean he And there are probably a, a bunch of other people who are just sort of comfortable in their bubble. I have seen and, reporting indicating that if the impeachment vote in the Senate were taken in secret, there would be approximately 30 Republican senators who would vote for impeachment. Oh, yeah, I think Jeff Flake came out talking about that as well, that that the reason uh, we're seeing the kind of political dialogue that we are right now is because it is so public and that and that if people had um, the ability to vote their conscience uh, without repercussions that we would see something different. But in that view, I feel like, well, then you're not voting your conscience because conscience is exercised in the daylight. Right. right? I mean, right. <laughs> but read for governor as a gubernatorial candidate, legitimate contender or not. What's the thought process? I I just don't see the numbers being there for a Republican to win the governorship. I mean, it's because again, the people and the money and the power are all downstate. Those people are very happy with Andrew Cuomo. They're very happy with the economy. If I lived in Westchester County and made 170 grand a year and lived in a $500,000 house, I'd be happy too. I'd be real happy. So I just don't think, you know, unless uh, 10 million people move to upstate New York and register as Democrats or as register as Republicans, I don't see the numbers being there. But then, and as far as I know, this question hasn't been asked, and, and maybe I'll have the guts to do it on my next appearance, but how much of the congressman's sniffing around the governorship is worry, A, that Republicans will lose power, in 2020. I mean, it's it's possible they could lose both houses of Congress and the White House, or maybe not, but certainly it's a possibility. And also the second possibility that redistricting will change his seat in a way that makes him think he might not be able to get it back next time. 
Interesting. Well, I also, I mean, you know, Congressman Reed is no George Pataki. I don't think he has the kind of appeal that we saw the last time we had a Republican governor. Um, but I think that, you know, I think he's more like akin to what's his face, the Buffalo guy that then got himself into all that trouble, but that tried to run for governor. I can't remember his name. But anyway, um, I, I think what Reed is probably counting on is that actually there are a lot of people who aren't satisfied with Cuomo. So I'm not sure I... I'm not sure I agree that everybody downstate likes Cuomo. I mean, he faced a pretty significant primary challenge the last time. I would expect that to come again. And I think the hope is that if a primary challenger is not successful and then runs a third party, <laughs> does Reed end up getting in there, uh, you know, splitting the ballot? Frankly, I'll say again, if his... Um, kind of public relations arm uh, and kind of local people that are working for him continue the way it's been so far, I'm not worried <laughs> that he would become governor. But I I don't know what he thinks his platform would be. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, there, there's kind of a dichotomy between being a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus and working across the aisle, but yet always referring to the other side as extreme and radical and just putting them down in the most derogatory terms. I yeah, mean, no. how do you become governor of a state with tens of millions of Democrats when you constantly refer to Democrats as extreme, radical, et cetera, et cetera? My thing, I, I don't know, I, I think as far as if if you're polling the average upstate resident, and, and I don't mean the the kind that aligns on the left. I mean, the kind that aligns on the right. Mm -hmm. I think Congressman Reed is a completely sensible, legitimate candidate for governor. I really do. I think he checks enough boxes, and I think he's he's the kind of person that a lot of a lot of rural Republicans would get behind. Well, a lot of people see him as a regular. You know, look at yeah. his last candidate, Tom, for Congress. Right. I mean, which I, it's funny because I've seen a lot of candidates begun but, to do that now across the country. Comes across as a real regular guy. I have him on once a month. You know, very affable. Always compliments me, and you know. But that's the problem. I, I last time around we saw Mark Molinaro, who who by all measures heading into election day was viewed as a contender, yeah. was viewed as a guy who could legitimately take down Governor Cuomo. Yeah. And he didn't even, he, I don't think he crested what the previous challenger had, uh, had acquired in that prior bid. I think he got around 35% of the vote. And it yeah, just Molinaro wasn't. Molinaro yeah. had like legitimate policy chops. Like right. he knew what was going on in the state and had reasonable proposals I mean, I didn't agree with all of them. It even but appeared that he had been getting support from both sides, from the frustrated left and from right. the right, mm -hmm. who was sort of, you know, looking yeah. for stability. That's why I just don't think the numbers are there. I don't yeah. think there's enough. And and like Jackie said, I mean, Pataki would have been kicked out of today's Republican Party. I mean, they would have seen him right. as a radical left-wing right. person. I mean, so the times have changed. I just don't think there's enough Republicans in New York or enough Republicans plus disaffected Democrats to equal victory. Okay, last topic of the day. Uh, we were going to get into bail reform a second time um, because there was a speaker yesterday, a former uh, district attorney who spoke yesterday in Geneva. Um, we're going to bypass that. We'll talk about that uh, next week. 
Um, but so there are a pair of bills that are being battered around Albany, which would essentially eliminate life sentences. One would give 55-year-olds who have served 15 years in prison a chance to come before the parole board regardless of the crime or original sentence, and the other bill would change standards for parole and allow someone to get released if they show signs of rehabilitation. Opponents of that latter measure say it just lowers the bar for what rehabilitation is. Now, I don't even know that this has a legitimate chance of, of getting through and being signed into law, especially with the backdrop being the current state of the criminal justice reforms that were just implemented in January. Right. There's so much There's so much uh, vocal opposition to those now. I don't know if these would, would get through. Um, is, is this surprising? To me, this was surprising. These, this, to me, this kind of it just caught me off guard. I didn't think anything like this was coming. But then I talked to some other folks who said, are you surprised that New York State would be pushing for legislation like this? Where do you come down on it, Ted? And I guess my curiosity is, is are you as shocked as I am? Well, I, I don't think I'm shocked because the, the whole, it's all part of all the same push, which is that our system is just very punitive. And punishment is one way, but there are other ways. There is rehabilitation. There's re-education. I mean, I mean, people on the right scream bloody murder about the idea of you know education for inmates. Well, maybe an educated inmate comes out of prison and can find a job and be a productive member of society. The problem is these things go too far. I, the, the bail reform has just turned into this political thing, but I think everybody can agree that it, it shouldn't have been blanket. There, there still need to be some offenses that are serious enough where you say, okay, this is a flight risk, this is a danger to the community, we have to hold this person. So, I, you know, the idea that we should be paying for the housing and medical needs and everything else of some 75-year-old guy who couldn't hurt anybody if he was let out, I can see that point. But like all these other things, you know, is the legislature going to have a voice or is Governor Cuomo going to decree all this stuff, and then the extreme cases. I mean, we're hearing it now. Every single repeat offender who commits a crime, somebody goes, see, it's not working. Bail reform's not working. But nobody's asking the question, is this a person who would have gotten out on bail before? You know, we've had repeat crime throughout history, and we always will. So I guess the idea in the abstract, I think, is not a bad idea. It just depends on what comes of it, and whatever comes of it, the right is going to scream and have a fit. You know, here's what I think is happening. Um, I think these bills go too far, and here's why. They are trying to legislate their way out of a problem that they do not want to admit the root cause of. So if we could just say our sentencing, our enforcement, our targeting has been racist, punitive, aimed at trying to lock up certain groups of people, and now we are going to reach back into those cases and actually render justice, right, by letting people affected by those policies be reconsidered under sensible guidelines. That would be the right thing to do. But to say from now going forward, we're just going to do everything 
differently blanket across if you're a certain age now maybe you know this this is the thing that's that's treating everybody equally and ignoring the fact that the real problem is a problem of disparity so you can't treat with a blanket policy you you can't remedy with a blanket policy something that was created through targeted systemic issues so that's what I have a problem with. I think if Governor Cuomo wanted to be a leader, he would come out and say, you want to know what? Instead of, you know, making pot legal across the board, we're going to end our policy of charging people with, you know, uh, pot offenses only in certain communities, only certain groups, and we're going to, you know, waive the, all the people who've been jailed for these nonviolent offenses over the years. That would be justice. But saying going forward, well, now everybody gets a pass. Well, I mean, that's great for all the wealthy white people who've been doing it all along and not getting caught and now, you know, can be more open about it. But what does that do to fix what the actual problem is? So I think he's trying to, like, say, I recognize there's an issue but without actually just being honest about what the issue is and solving that. Well right. put. Well said. I agree. Thank you. <clears throat> Okay, so that's it. That's it for today. We're, we had a couple other topics that I, I was hoping we'd be able to jump into, but we'll hold them off for uh, for next week or the week after that. Uh, Ted, where can folks hear you Monday through Friday? On the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio in Geneva. That's ninety five point nine FM, twelve forty AM WGVA in Auburn. It's ninety eight point one FM and fifteen ninety AM WAUB. All right, go over to Facebook, like us there. That's Debrief Pod. We're also uh, online, if you can imagine that. DebriefPod.com, that's where all of our previous episodes are. Uh, if you go there, go ahead and hit the subscribe button as well. Uh, we will see you next week. And until then, stay informed.